2 Samuel 22. Well, it's Memorial Day, and a lot of people are out, but you know what? I'm looking around. We got more people in here the second service than we did the first service. Thank you for being here. I'm Chris Risk, and I'm filling in, actually, for Pastor Mike McDonald this morning. Um, 2 Samuel 22, starting at verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Let's start out, though, first with praying. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are our rock, our cornerstone, our deliverer. We give you all the praise this morning. We just ask you to teach us what you would have us know, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And let us know how great a deliverer you are. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. The study started, if you were with us all this time, it started in 1 Samuel. And now I'm going to polish it off in 2 Samuel chapter 22. There's two more chapters to go in 2 Samuel, but we're going to end it today here. And it's, it's kind of cool and beautiful that this whole study is ending here with a song because it began with a song. What Rob read was Hannah's song, and that's how the study started in the whole beginning. So the whole study has got bookmarks on the end of singing and song and praise, praise of deliverance. And that says a lot about the guy we're going to talk about the most today, David. The whole story of David is bookmarked in these songs. Chapter 22 is almost verbatim the same as Psalm 18. There's a few differences, but it says here David spoke the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So did he write this song towards the beginning of his reign as a king, right after Saul died, or did he sing this song all through the years of his life, and he's singing it here at the end? The answer is yes. Because he still had enemies. He still had uh, uh, Absalom. He had Joab conniving behind his back. There was this guy named Sheba who started a revolution against him. Then he had people that would smile to his face, but yet stab him in the back when he was turned. I mean, they wanted David to fail. He could sing this song for years. And it would have been easy for David to either get depressed or become paranoid and start becoming a dictator. Both of these would have been things that come from stress and worry. We have a lot of stress and worry. And wouldn't it be nice if we had somebody to worry about it for us? Somebody who knows exactly what to do and handle it for us. You get it in your life and you say, here, you take it. I want you to handle that for me. I'm going to go camping. Wouldn't that be great? Well, King David had somebody like that. Somebody who took it from him and saved him out of it and delivered him. And here we get to sing the praises of his deliverance. Because David had people conspiring to kill him. People making plans to overthrow his throne. He had things to worry about that would give us ulcers and migraines and high blood pressure that would kill us without anybody helping. The Lord delivered David from the hand of all his enemies and from Saul. How? How did the Lord deliver David? Because here is a song about how 
the deliverance machine works. And we're going to walk through it right now. When we study this, when we see how David was delivered, we get to see how you and I are delivered. So first of all, we see the means of deliverance. Verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. The first thing to know is that God's deliverance is personal. Notice that it's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He could have easily said the rock, the deliverer, but he didn't. This was personal to David. And that's the first clue to understand about what's going on here. I told you before that chapter 22 here is almost identical to Psalm 18. There's a couple of differences, but one of the biggest differences is how it begins in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 begins, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And there's relationship here. Relationship breeds faith. Not simply faith that there will be deliverance, but faith in the deliverer. David knew his God and he loved him. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Look at what he says. The Lord is his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold, savior, on and on and on. David knew it. If only we knew how many times we'd been delivered. And David is trying to describe God with these images, but they're not just images. These are the means of deliverance. How did God deliver David? He delivered him by being his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold, savior. That's how he delivers people. Can you say that? Has he been your rock? You know the image of a rock, right? I mean, I don't mean a pebble and I don't mean a stone and I don't even mean a boulder. I mean bedrock, solid, reliable. Also, David deliver, uh, God delivers by protection. So we've seen here in 2 Samuel that David is out in the Judean wilderness hiding from Saul. Lots of rocks out there. Think of going to the Four Corners area. If you've seen Monument Valley, you've seen all the mesas on the tops. They had that in Judea also. Mesas that your enemy can't climb. I mean, nowadays we have helicopters and we have high-tech rock climbing equipment and everything. We could get up there. But not, this is 1000 BC Israel. You're pretty safe up there on the top of the rocks. And that's where David lived for years. Hid on the high rocks that kept him safe. High rocks that were defendable, like a fortress or a refuge. That's what David is singing about. He's talking about being safe up there. He could be defended up there. It was a stronghold. He's saying that that's what the Lord is. Because David needed to be delivered. I mean, we all do. Next is the call for deliverance. Who do you call to? Verse 4, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. That's where the lyrics of the song comes from. I kind of picked that song for this morning. We read, it in past, we read in past psalms that David is calling out to the Lord from intense crisis, passion, strength, stress, fear. God, I'm in deep trouble! What's really fascinating about David is how he takes his distress and his prayers and he makes them into songs. 
That's a good lesson to learn because all of us cry, scream like I just did, but how many of us take it and turn it into a song? That's what David did. He did it a lot. David was a gospel blues singer from out of the South. You take and put pressure on a guy like that and he'll just turn it into a gospel song. What kind of pressure am I talking about? Well, storms. Look at verse 5. For the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Picture of waves, torrents. Does that remind you of any other stories in the Bible? How about a bunch of disciples in a boat getting rocked around by the waves and Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep? Or a bunch of disciples being rocked around in a boat by the waves and Jesus is out there walking on top of the waves? But David spent most of his life in the wilderness. I mean, storms in the Negev Desert. Oh, yeah. I mean, we live in New Mexico, and one of the things that you always tell your kids in New Mexico is do not play in the arroyos when it's raining outside. Flash flooding, wash them away, and get drowned. And it's no different in the Middle East. I mean, they have dry riverbeds over there that can flash flood. That's what David is talking about. Troubles like an arroyo that fill up and wash you out and drown you. And he wasn't being paranoid. I mean, his life really was being threatened. Life threatened. Look at verse 6. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Sheol is the grave. Death was a real possibility for David. People wanted David dead. The Philistines wanted David dead. Saul wanted David dead. Absalom wanted David dead. Storms and waves of death and destruction are real. And you felt them. What do you do? You go to the back of the boat and you cry out to Jesus. You look out on the waves and you see him walking out on the waves. You call to the Lord. Look at verse 7. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard me. And my cry came to his ears. When you need God's deliverance, ask for it. Cry for it, scream for it, because that's where David went. The disciples went to the Lord, crying and scared. We wait till it gets really bad before we cry out. David sang about it. From his temple, he heard my voice. Did God love David's singing voice? What did it sound like? It sounded like a cry, and my cry came to his ears. When God's child cries to him, things start to happen. Because the next part is the power of deliverance. Verse 8, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. The word means hot. It means furious. God is going to do something about it. And here is how he, do it. he does it. God delivers by changing circumstances. God's wheel of providence start to turn. You can be scared of a God who can strike you dead with lightning, but be terrified of a God who can move circumstances behind the scenes through providence. Verse 9, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind Watch out when you see the word cherub here because we're not talking about a plump little baby with little wings and a bow and arrow. Cherubs were powerful creatures in the Bible. It was a cherub that was guarding the Garden of Eden. 
It was cherubs that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant with their wings spread towards each other. The idea is power. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. It means powerful and it means fast. The cry comes up to God and he responds with power and strength and he responds now. Verse 12, he made darkness around him a canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flame forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Phrase after phrase. Do you get the picture? God is moving heaven, sky, earth, and sea to deliver David. We used to live in, uh, we lived for three years in Alaska. And we used to go out hiking sometime with the kids when they were still little. Do you want to know what the scariest thing to see in Alaska while you're out hiking? Because it's not a grizzly bear. It's a baby grizzly bear. Hey, little fella. Where's your mommy? Because she's not far away. And when she sees you, she's going to be tearing it up. Have you read Second Kings? God will tear it up to get to his child who cries out to him. It's going to be fast. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be lit up with special effects, glowing coals, flames, thunder, brightness before him, coals of flame, uh, coals of fire flame forth. But I don't see that. No, you don't see it now. But the Bible says that's what's happening. And I believe someday we'll be shocked and astounded at how much was going on behind the scenes to deliver us over and over and over. If my son or my daughter is broken out down somewhere, anywhere on this planet, I'm in the car now and I'm going to go get them. I don't have a cherub that I can mount up and fly on, but I tell you what, I will be speeding. But also God delivers by changing our location. Verse 17, he, kept, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. God saves from storms by taking us out of where the storm is. I mean, not all the time, but if that's what's best, then that's what he's going to do. I mean, have you ever been in a bad situation and had to move? Have you ever lost a job and it turned out it was really for the better? Or quit a job and it was the best thing that could have happened to you? My daughter is a second grade school teacher here on the other side of town. And uh, she, worked through, uh, she worked through her college waiting tables and working at preschools. And she was working at a preschool and she loved working at this preschool. She used to talk about her kids at this preschool and everything. Well, the management had mismanaged the money and uh, it got to be a really, really bad place to work and so she quit. The preschool didn't last three months. She got out of there just in time. There are many times when we see later how we were delivered, drawn out of many waters. But keep in mind, God delivers with his strength, not ours. Verse 18, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. David's enemies were strong. They hated him. Can you imagine anybody hating King David? They were too mighty for him. And, 
and keep in mind that he's the king of the country. You might think David becoming king would be the end of the story, end of the hard times. I mean, it's happily ever after, right? He's king now. That's it. Like the end of Lord of the Rings. Well, David had one thing that he was beginning to know pressure from being king, and that is one word, politics. Israel was not really a united states. I mean, they were 12 tribes, and every tribe had its own leader, and every tribe had clans inside of it, and they had their own elders. David's kingdom was very tenuous. He had to consider politics when he ruled Israel. So David had palace intrigue he had to worry about. He had traitors and spies in his own house, people who thought that they could do a better job than him. It's always people, isn't it? I mean, the job is the job, but I mean, it's the people that make it toxic. Waves and torrents and storms, arroyos, Monday through Friday. Maybe you have people who think you're the wrong person for the job and they can do it better. And I mean, and it's not paranoia. They're really saying that behind your back. Blessed are you when your very first thought is to cry out to the Lord. Verse 18, he rescued me from my strong enemy, those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Have you ever been rescued? Somebody came to help pack. The tow truck showed up. The check finally came. Remember that feeling. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Who's they? The they is Saul. The day is Absalom, too mighty for him, but you know what? They didn't have God's support. David did. The Lord supported David. Why? Why did God do that? Verse 20, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Delighted in me. The root word means to bend down. The idea is like when you're standing there and your toddler comes up to your leg and you look down on them and you smile and you bend down to pick them up and put them on your hip. That's what David is talking about. Does God delight in you? If you are one of Jesus' sheep, if you have come to him with nothing to say, but I got nothing, Lord, save me, then you have the righteousness of Christ. It's counted towards you. It's imputed to you. I have no righteousness, never have. I still sin, I still need a savior, but Christ reconciled and died for me. Why? Because I'm so lovable and I have so much to offer? No, he did it for God's glory. Us reconciled to God glorifies God and that's what it's all about. And what happens? What does God get? Out of that sacrifice, well, he gets worshipers. John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him, a nation of priests to glorify him, to worship him, to sing songs like 2 Samuel 22, who have war stories of deliverance. There's a goal to salvation, and that is to become someone delightful. And that someone is Christ. Romans 8.28 is a famous passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But do you know the next verse? 
It continues. Romans 8, 29 says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me just jump ahead for a second and use the word sanctification. God wants to conform you into the image of his son. But first you need to be in Christ and then you are alive to him and dead to sin for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 says, and this will explain a lot about this next part that I'm gonna get into of David's song because the next part is the goal of deliverance. David was delivered in many, many different ways. We read a lot about his physical deliverance. Why did God deliver David? What did he deliver David for? Hold that thought. Look at verse 22. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Whoa. Hold up, Dave. Didn't you steal a man's wife and have him murdered later? Yes, he did. We read it in 2 Samuel 11. So how in the world can David say some of these things? Look at this stuff. Verse 23, for all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. What in the world? How can anybody say things like that? Well, there's two ideas. One of them is that when David wrote this, it was right after he was delivered from Saul. And up until then, he really did keep his nose clean. I mean, there was, he was about to massacre a sheep farm run by a guy named Nabal, and Abigail came out and stopped him. We could read this as him being good up until then, but you know what? It's at the end of the book now, and he sang this song all through his life because he still had enemies, he still kept having enemies. He still needed to be delivered. But how can anyone say outrageous things like this? Well, just as a spoiler, let me jump ahead and tell you where I'm going, okay? Look at verse 33. Go down to verse 33. This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. That's really the key there. The key is that this verse right here is the decoder ring to figuring out what the rest of it is. It wasn't that David was sinless. It was God who was able to enable him to talk like this. David was a man after God's own heart. And I hope that as we've read through First and Second Samuel, we've learned about a feature of David's character. He admitted when he was wrong. He admitted when he had sinned. When Nathan the prophet came and confronted him, did he make excuses? He did not. He said, I have sinned. He didn't say I made a mistake. He didn't say I made a boo. He said, I have sinned. What did Saul do? Uh, the people were leaving. This stuff belongs to the Lord. You were late. Or Adam, the woman that you gave me. David admitted and that's not to say that David did not suffer the consequences of his sin. David suffered a lot for what he had done. 
He lost children. He lost his throne for a while. It was a huge black spot on his name, even to this day. But he confessed it, and he accepted God's judgment. That's a big deal. I was blameless before him, he says. We can say blameless. I did not say sinless. It would be very foolish of me to stand up here and say that you could ever be sinless. But we can say blameless. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But we can say blameless. David had a lot of enemies. You and I have an enemy. Do you know what the name Satan means? It means adversary. As in an adversary in a courtroom in front of a judge who accuses you. I mean, the Bible says in Revelation 12.10 that Satan accuses us day and night. Wouldn't it be nice if you had already gone to God and confessed all of that before you ever got to the courtroom? When the accuser accuses you in front of the judge and the judge says, you know, I already know about that. They confessed and the penalty's already been paid. Then you are blameless because the sacrifice for you was sinless. I just read to you 1 John 1.8. Anybody have memorized 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The old preachers had a name for 1 John 1.9. They called it the Christian's bar of soap. It does something when we walk daily in an attitude of confessing our sins and staying right with God. Jesus said it like this. He said the word abide. He said it, he said in John 15, 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Stay, abide, obey, confess your sins. And here's a word we don't hear very much, repent. Because there are people in this world, maybe some in here right now, who think that that ability gives you license to just go crazy. You mean I can just rob and steal and cheat and then confess it to God and get away? Sweet. I know what I'll do. I'll lie on my time card and then confess it in a prayer request. And then I'm square with God. Is that how it works? It's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. How'd you like it if your kid treated you like that? It doesn't work like that. God's not fooled. He does not go, I know he murdered that guy, but he confessed it. Oh, there's nothing I can do. Confound you, Grace. No. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. The goal of our deliverance is to have fellowship with him. To keep the fellowship with him. Personally, we're not saved just so we won't go to hell. We have fellowship with him 
Jesus won that for us. We stay true to our spouse not just because we made a promise, not just because we don't want to split the money. We stay true to our spouse, I hope we can say this, because we love them. We like being around them. We like talking to them. You don't play games like that with God. I'll commit adultery and confess it and I'm square. What a sweet deal. God sees our heart. God sees our motives. Look at verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Maybe your Bible has shrewd or astute for that part. The root word means to twist. It means to turn around. It could be used for braiding hair. God will twist it around on you. Think of Jacob. He lied to his father, so he got lied to by his father-in-law. No, confession and abiding on the vine doesn't work like that. Verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Anybody have 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 memorized? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Yes, David sinned. After he was delivered from Saul, he failed to deliver to discipline his sons. He relied on his army instead of God, and so he numbered the people. But I tell you what, he never did again steal somebody else's wife and have their husband murdered. He really did repent. What does repent look like? The word metanoia, people say a lot it means change your mind. Well, there's something that goes with changing your mind. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a good story about how repent looks like. I was in the Air Force for 23 years. I was a radar operator. My last seven years in the Air Force, we were in a mobile radar unit. We would go and deploy out to the field, put, put up camo netting, wear helmets, dig holes, eat MREs, shoot guns. It's great. So we had, a lot of, we had a few machine guns in the squadron. We had an M60 machine gun. We used to get shoot full auto, which is a bucket list thing that you got to do once in your life. Blanks, but still thrilling. We had a guy, after he, we had shot that M60 machine gun, we had a guy who reached down and grabbed the barrel of that gun and burned his hand. Ah! He, he walked around the rest of the deployment with this great big white bandage on his hand like a Q-tip. It was our squadron commander who did that, by the way. Uh, but I tell you what, that was 20 years ago. Now, I'm, I, I can imagine that in the last 20 years, that guy has probably done many knuckleheaded things, but I'd be willing to bet money that he has never again grabbed a barrel of, an, of a machine gun by the, by the barrel again. It's got a handle on the top, sir, you know. He repented. He got burned. So you don't do that again. We're going to sin, but we keep ourselves from sinning again like we did before. When we pray to God, we confess our sin. We ask for strength to keep us from that sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you have a problem with something in your life, cut it off. We abide, we repent, we stop that. Why? To get brownie points? 
to get gold, silver, precious jewels at the Bema Seat of Christ. No, we do that so we can stay right with him, to stay in relationship with him. We confess it as rebellion against him because I tell you what, if you don't, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you have something that you need to confess to him, every time you come into his presence, he will bring it up, even when you're trying to pray for your lunch. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not keep my commandments and I'll love you. Keeping his commandments comes out of love. Apple trees make apples. That's what they do. If you love him, you will want to abide. That's what you're going to want. That's what David had. And when he didn't have it, he prayed to get it back. Renew a right spirit in me. Psalm 51, that's what we want. That's how you want to walk with him, in right relationship. And stop worrying about what the plan is for your life. I'll tell you what the plan is for your life. I just read you Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. You got one job, Christian, one, one, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the plan for your life. And if that means that you're a pastor or a missionary, then that's great. May your tribe increase. But I tell you what, if that also means selling insurance in a cubicle or raising children at home or fixing cars or wearing a paper hat and a name tag at the deep fat fryer, then so long as you are becoming conformed to the image of his son, then you are inside the plan for your life. And don't stress about whether you're working hard enough. But I should be doing something more. I should be doing this. Why, why am I not? Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. You know that we don't have to think of that image as a glass filled with liquid. You can think of the image of a ship being with sails filled by the wind. Jesus said the Holy Spirit works like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. But I tell you what, he moves you right where he needs you to be. Don't you want to live your life like that? It's a mystery. I don't know where he's going to move me to. But where you are, that must be where he wants you to be because here you are. You don't see it. You don't know where it's coming from or going to. To be moved and set where he wants you to be and then moved again and placed right where he wants you. That's the goal of deliverance. To live like that. Abide, stay, confess, stay on the vine and he will look at you, and he will only see the perfect, righteous, sinless, delightful Jesus. Because you're hidden in him. Stay hidden. And you will be blameless. Not sinless, you will be blameless. That's the goal of deliverance. And when you and I get that through our thick skulls, then what will happen? Praise. The next one is praise for deliverance. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Praise songs. Praise and worship. Bright, a lamp, lightens my darkness. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. When praise is strong in us, we become strong. Verse 30, for by you I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. When we were first in love with him, we were giddy about it. We were excited. 
We could stay devoted to reading the Bible. Give me a summertime, I could have the New Testament done by Monday night. Back then, we sang hymns and songs and spiritual songs, and they were so deep, and we sang them all alone in the car. We'd been delivered. We had joy. And the praise that we had was not just for what a great planet he had made, and it wasn't just for what he had done for us. It was praise about him personally. Verse 31, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Perfect, true, he's a shield. And now David has a whole new position. He's got several different positions. First of all, he's got a defendable position. Look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except for our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. A rock. 1 Corinthians 19.4 says the rock is Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. David is saying he is our strong refuge, and it is him who has made my way blameless. That's where we run to. He made my feet like the feet of deer and set me secure on the heights. The analogy of a deer being sure-footed is all over the Psalms. But do you know what he means? I told you we lived in Alaska, and besides mama bears and baby bears, another thing they got in Alaska is doll sheep. They got sheep that stand on the side of cliffs on ledges that big. I've seen them. They say that God gave them these natural suction cups on the end of their hooves so that they can stay up there on narrow ledges. That's what David's talking about here. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. If it were up to me, I would have fallen decades ago. It's God who puts his delivered people in a defendable position, secure on the heights. And then what does he do with them? He gives them a discipleship position. Verse 35, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. Now, David was literally a warrior, but he uses a lot of analogy here. I mean, military analogy is common in the New Testament. Jesus used military analogy. Paul used military analogy. But Paul uses it when he's talking about our discipline and our training. There is a war, but as Paul says, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The Lord trains our hands for that. The Holy Spirit trains and illuminates our mind. And what sword does he use? He uses the word of God. And we fight the war. Verse 38, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. The training enabled a total destruction of the adversaries. Verse 39, I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. Thrust them through. This is 1000 B.C. Israel. 
They didn't have any EMTs or any trauma centers. You got thrust through back in those days and you were done. Violent stuff, very dark, very metal, but real for David and training in God's word for us. Winning victory in daily life, pulling down strongholds. But who is the one that's doing it? Verse 40, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. It's God who wins the victories we have. You equipped me with strength for the battle. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, and he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. There came a day in David's life when he could look around, and all the people that were mightier than him, who he was so scared of before, they were all gone. So God gave David a defendable position, he gave him a discipleship position, and then he gave him a demonstrating position. David became famous for what God had done for him. And the beautiful thing about David is that he made sure that everybody knew that it was God who should get all the glory for this. Verse 44, you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. David says he was delivered from my people and was made the head of the nations. He says, look at this, 45, foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart. They came trembling out of their fortresses, cringing, trembling. How so? You remember Rahab, Joshua, the battle of Jericho? Joshua had sent two spies to go in and spy out Jericho. And a woman named Rahab hid these two spies. And when the coast was clear and they were leaving, they had to know. They turned around and they, they had to ask, why did you do this? Why did you help us? I mean, we're coming in to invade and you helped us like this. Why did you do that? And this is what she said. It's in Joshua 2.11. She says, and as soon as we heard it, Heard what? Heard that they had just wiped out Edom. Heard that they had just wiped out Moab. Heard that God had split the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army. Heard that these people had been living for 40 years on manna and water from a rock. And they were on their way. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a Gentile woman saying that. A woman who had heard what God had done for his people. There is such a thing as a healthy fear of God. If you are being used by God as a demonstration of his power, there will be people cut to the heart by you. That's good. God's the one doing that to them. God is doing that, not you. It is the Holy Spirit who is cutting them to the heart. Let him. God shows his light, shows you as his light, and they come trembling out of their fortresses. That's what happened to David. For miles around, the Gentiles knew that God, what God had done for David. 
Don't you want God to use you like that? To melt people's hearts and have them surrender to him? Just make sure you understand that it's got to be the Holy Spirit who does that to them and not your slick education of apologetics or your witty retorts in Facebook. It's got to be him who does it. Or else you get fake converts. They won't be real. The Holy Spirit needs to make them come cringing. And David also had a delighted position. Verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the God of my salvation. More lyrics from the song. Victory brings praise. Praise for being the rock we stand on. Praise for salvation. Praise because he lives. He really lives. I mean, in David's day, you couldn't really truthfully say that about any of the pagan gods. David's God is really alive. Still is. Still delivers. Verse 48, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who does vengeance belong to? David doesn't say he avenged himself. He's saying the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Verse 49, you brought me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. People wanted David dead. They wanted him disgraced. They wanted to be able to say he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Of course, I just quoted you something out of Matthew 27. It's about Jesus. But you know, David is a type for Jesus all over the place. It looked bad for David. It looked bad for Jesus. But God turned it all around because he is a God who delivers. He's the rock of salvation. Verse 50, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. David is going to sing this song to the nations, to the whole world. Go and spread the good news to the whole world and say what? Verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Let's pray. Glory to you, glory and majesty and honor and praise. Be high and lifted up, Lord God, for you are the rock You are the fortress. You are the refuge. Glory to you for all your deliverance. Thank you so much. Cause us to know it every day. In Jesus' name, amen.